You have two scripture passages this evening. Exodus 19 is what we're going to start off with. Exodus 19. It's not listed in your bulletin, but I will give you the page number as soon as I know. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 117. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25. Hear now God's holy word. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in the fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord and he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. In chapter 20, following the speaking of the Ten Commandments, verse 18 When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Our second passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,878. 1,878. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.
As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. This evening, we're also going to be looking at Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 13. We will read the answers together with one voice. Why must he be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice demands it. Man has sinned. Man must pay for his sin. But a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that, by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And who is this mediator? True God and at the same time truly human and truly righteous. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free, to make us right with God. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own dear son. It's the teaching of the catechism. Tonight we're talking about the concept of a mediator. It's the word spoken in question 18. Who is this mediator? Who is this mediator? And it's an important word. I'm sure many of you maybe know the meaning. It's a, a go-between. And uh, I was thinking of interesting ways in which we, um, we naturally come to find that we want a mediator. We want someone to mediate between us. Uh, for instance, back when I was a kid, if I broke something that was my father's, I would not go to my father and tell my father. I would go to my mom, you know, the more nurturing, softer side. And I'd say, Mom, I broke this. It was my dad's, I broke it. And, and, and I, would you tell him that I, I broke this thing of his? What am I doing there? I, I want a mediator, right? I want something to uh, soften the blow a little bit. And I was thinking about today, one modern phenomenon of the reality of desiring a mediator, which we probably don't think about very often, would be something like um, a phone or an email, or a text message, right? If you hang out with any youngins these days, it won't be long before you find out that many have experienced the breakup through a text. Hey, I don't think we should date anymore. Well, what is that? It's something you don't really want to say to the person face-to-face, but you're okay with using a mediator 
Something that lessens the blow a little bit, something that softens the discomfort that would come with speaking that face-to-face to someone. Um, you use a mediator, a text message, an email, even a phone call. It's less personal, isn't it? You're using the device as a mediator, a go-between. That's exactly what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about what it means to have Christ as our mediator. I would say that a phone or an email or a text message is not a positive example of a mediator, but Christ definitely is. So let's look at that. Our theme this evening... God reveals our perfect mediator. Okay, start that over. In the gospel. God reveals our perfect mediator... In the gospel, this is how we find out. This true and righteous man. It's almost as if um, the catechism is playing hangman, right? You're guessing things, and as you go on, you're beginning to see a, a person being revealed. This true mediator is also true God. And then finally, we get it out of them, right? Finally, the name is spoken the first time since Lord's Day 1. Lord's Day 6 proclaims that this true mediator, this perfect mediator, is Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all at this aspect, true and righteous man. And as we look at these, I want us to... Remember question and answer 19 throughout all of them. We're going to look at question and answer 16, 17, and 18 because that's what those three points do. True and righteous man, true God, Jesus Christ. But as we're looking at all of them, I want us to look at them through the lens of question 19. How do you come to know this true mediator, this perfect mediator? The Holy Gospel tells me. God reveals our perfect mediator in the Gospel. And this gospel is, is broader, it's deeper, it's wider than so many today in our evangelical community consider. The gospel does not start with Matthew in the New Testament. The gospel starts in Genesis. And it goes all the way to Revelation. It's a gospel that the catechism writers say is revealed already in paradise. Proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets portrayed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and finally fulfilled. So there is, just as the catechism has sort of been leading us on to get us to consider who it is that might be the person who can save us, in the same way that the the, the scriptures, the holy word of God, is slowly revealing to us more and more clearly, almost as if we're looking through a camera lens that's, that's being brought into focus who it is that this mediator is, why we need him, who it's going to be until finally we have that focus put on Christ. 
So question 16 says, why must he be truly human and truly righteous? And of course, this begins with that constant theme that we saw throughout the first part of the catechism, the section on sin or misery or guilt. It's that God's justice demands it. The importance of this point is to understand who it is exactly that has offended God, who it is exactly that's sinned against God. God has not sinned against God. God cannot sin. God is perfectly righteous and holy. So those who have sinned against God is man. It's us. Us. We are the guilty party. We're the guilty party. So God's justice demands that the punishment that is due to those who are guilty be actually given to the guilty ones. Man is sin. Man must pay for his sin. But a sinner cannot pay for others. So here, God's justice and the importance of the guilty party is based on the fact of man, right? But the righteous aspect of this is that a sinner can't pay for someone else's sin. It seems rather simple, doesn't it? It seems rather simple to consider the fact that a sinner must pay for his own sin. And as we've discussed already, that payment is eternal conscious torment in hell. So how can one sinner pay for the eternity of his own sin, yet also find somewhere in himself or herself to pay for someone else's eternal punishment? It's an impossibility. A logical impossibility. It would be as if, to use the example from our scripture from last week, a man who has a 10,000 talent debt coming to another man who has a 10,000 talent debt and saying, I'd like to cover your debt. Put that on my tab. Or a more modern example would be someone who is in debt themselves offering to pay for the meal that you went out for on a credit card. It's going to lengthen that line of credit. A sinner can't pay for someone else's sin. That's why he has to be righteous. He has to be a true and righteous man. 
But anybody who has any understanding or grasp of Genesis 3, who has any understanding or grasp of the depravity that humanity has fallen into, would say that this, this doesn't go together. A sinless man, a righteous man? Let's just go to Romans 3. Let's read, there is none righteous. There is no one who does good. There is none who seeks after God. How can we have this truly human, truly righteous man? But that's not all, right? It must not just be a true and righteous man. They have to be truly God. They have to be truly God. Question 17, why must he also be truly God? Why must he also be true God? What we have here being discussed for us, spoken of for us, of who Christ is as this mediator. What causes him to be the perfect mediator? What is different about him that makes him the perfect mediator? And it's that he's both man and both God. It's a... theological term called the hypostatic union. It's fancy, right? If you want to look at the first, I don't know, 400 years of church history, and you want to look at the many controversies that occurred and the heresies that sprung up, They are all about trying to figure out exactly this question. How can Jesus be truly God and truly man? What's the makeup of that? And what's that look like? And as many things that concern God, the reality is that much of that is a mystery. But we do know what it isn't. We know know it isn't that... Christ is 50-50. He's 50% God. He's 50% man. We know that in all technicality, it's not 100-100. Because Christ is not 200. We know that Christ's divinity did not swallow up his humanity so that he is was for a moment truly a man, but now he's just 100% divine. What were the great theologians and church historians and all of the great patriarchs of the past, the church fathers, able to surmise? By their great wonderings and their great figuring things out and putting all of their great minds together, what were they able to figure out? They were able to figure out and determine that Christ 
truly God, truly man. No mixing, no confusion. Christ is truly God. He's truly man. He has a reasonable mind, reasonable soul. That he is the Son of God. He must be truly God. Because by the power of his divinity, he may be able to bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity. By the power of his divinity, he could bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity. So this is what we need to understand. We need to understand that when Christ was sweating droplets of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ was asking the Father if this cup can pass from him, he was saying, what is that cup? The cup is all of the wrath of God against mankind's sins that he knew was about to be poured out upon him, that when we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, that what we are saying is that what Christ experienced upon the cross in those few hours was what you and I deserved as an eternity of punishment in hell. And he has to be true God because by the power of his divinity he might bear the weight of God's anger, his wrath, and his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. Well, how is this seen in the Holy Gospel? It's seen in Genesis 3 when God kills the first animal so that he can clothe Adam and Eve. It's seen and God saving Noah while the rest of mankind is wiped away. It's seen in God shutting the door of the ark. He's the one that closed the door in, that sealed the door. It's seen in the patriarchs, in the prophets, as they proclaim of a one who is to come, a prophet greater than Moses. It's seen in the sacrifices on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the priests would go into the temple and kill and slaughter an animal in order to cover the sins of the people of Israel. It's seen in the fact that Moses was able to go to the mountain, that Moses stood between the people of Israel and God so that they would not strike them dead. And it's seen most clearly and perfectly in the truly God, truly man, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfectly righteous life and then who died as a sinner. One who became sin for us. That he may earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Earn, restore, these are powerful words when spoken of a mediator. 
Because a mediator is someone who stands between, right? He's a go-between. And Christ is exactly that. He is our mediator between God the Father and humankind, humanity. And he is this mediator because as the one who is our sacrifice, our one and only, our last, our final, never to be repeated, and as he now stands in the presence of the Heavenly Father with the semblance of his wounds upon him, he can say, I have earned for them, I have restored for them the righteousness that they need in order to be right before you, Father. And this was the plan all along. This is what God intended to reveal through the gospel. This mediator... Who is he? Jesus Christ. I think it's very profound at this moment, this moment that we are told that this mediator, true God, and at the same time truly human and and truly righteous is our Lord Jesus Christ, to then just go back. And read Lord's Day 1. And to grasp what it is that it really means that Christ is our only comfort in life and in death. And to read that answer that says that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him that that describing right there, that describes for us the mediator, the true mediator, the perfect mediator. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free and make us right with God. So we need to understand about this mediator, Jesus, that not only has he volunteered, but that he is given to us. For God so loved the world that he gave His one and only Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever may believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What we need to not do when we consider a mediator is to think that what's going on here is that there is this Father figure in heaven and He's so angry at us. And He's so angry at us, but then His Son Jesus steps in and He says, don't be mad at them, I'll take care of it. Remember what I told you. We cannot pit God's justice against his mercy. The same just God who looks upon sinners and is angry with their sin is the same God who determined in eternity past 
to send Jesus Christ into the world, to be born, born of the Virgin Mary, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, to be crucified, buried, and on the third day rise from the dead and do ascend into heaven. That's the same God. This mediator volunteered, was given to us to set us completely free. Remember, Lord's Day 1 talks about being set free from the tyranny of the devil. That we were purchased out of the domain of darkness, the kingdom of sin and Satan and the world, and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. Freed. That we may be made right with God. I don't know if there are more pleasing words in the English language than hearing that through Jesus Christ we are made right with God. You may be asking, how do our scripture passages fit into considering Christ as the perfect mediator? That's why I wanted to start by reading Exodus 19 and 20. It's the very passage that the writer to the Hebrews is considering when he begins to talk about the new way in which we as the people of God can come to God. The writer to the author of Hebrews is speaking to a group of Jews who are considering the persecution that they are going through and saying maybe it would be better to simply hide in the synagogue. Maybe it would be better to go back into the old covenant ways so that we wouldn't be seen as these weird new sect of, of Christians who believe in this Jesus. And the author of the Hebrews wants to convince wants to persuade his readers that there is nothing to go back to. And he does this by contrasting the mountain that the people of Israel came to, Mount Sinai, and the mountain that the new people of Israel, the church, the body of Christ comes to under the new covenant, Mount Zion. And what does he say about the old mountain? It is a frightening mountain. If we would have been there that day, we would have been shaking in our sandals. We would have been shaking to the core because there was thunder, there was lightning, there was clouds. The people of God were told, you cannot even touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you must be stoned to death. And the voice of God was coming from the mountain. And Moses went up. And the people were so frightened. They said, don't let God speak to us. Don't let the Lord speak to us. You speak to us. What's being pictured there is the raw power of God without mediation. It is one that consumes you. It is a consuming fire, as the author of Hebrews says. 
that without a mediator and you in your sinful, depraved condition cannot stand in the presence of God. You would be consumed by the presence of God. That's what it means to have the raw power, righteousness, holiness, wrath of God without mediation. And he's telling these people in the book of Hebrews, that's what you want to go back to? You want to go back to that? He's saying, but what do we have? You don't have that. You've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And how do you come? In fear? No. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. It's a joyous occasion. It's a march into the city. It's a parade. And how can it be this way? How can Mount Zion be so contrastedly different than Mount Sinai? Because you have Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant. Covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mediator of the new covenant. You remember when Cain killed Abel and God said to Cain, I can... Here came, I can hear Abel's blood screaming from the ground, crying out from the ground. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Christ's blood cries out too. It cries out forgiven. It cries out set free. It cries out, this is Mount Zion, come in peace. This is your home. This is where you belong. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the people of God, the assembly. Come, gather around the throne. It cries out and it says, my blood speaks peace to you and you. You can approach this mountain. You can touch this mountain. You can come forward. You can come close because you have a mediator. Because in me... In me, all your sins are forgiven. And in me, you have been given the perfect righteousness that I have. That's what the Holy Gospel is all about. Pointing to, revealing our perfect mediator all the more. And what I want us to grasp tonight is that if we have this perfect mediator, if we come to Mount Zion, if we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, then people of God, you're invited. You're invited into the very presence of God and all your needs, concerns, cares. You're invited into the very presence of God even when you are in the midst 
of your sin and your shortcomings and your faults. You are invited into the very presence of God on the mountaintops and the valley lows and when things are just sort of meh. You're invited because you have a perfect mediator, one who is truly human, truly righteous, truly man, truly God, who lived the life that you were supposed to live but could not because of your sinfulness, and who died the death that you were supposed to die. You should have died because of your sinfulness. And that truly righteous man and that truly God, Jesus Christ, now stands in the presence of God in heaven as your mediator, who intercedes for you now, even this very moment, as the one who's lived for you and died for you. What that means is there should be nothing that keeps us from the presence of our God. There should be nothing that stops us from entering the throne room and from bringing our needs. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word. Thank you that you have given us a perfect mediator and that you have revealed it to us in your gospel. We praise you for Jesus Christ who is our advocate with you and whose perfect work now sings to you on our behalf. May nothing keep us from your presence, Lord. May we enter freely and with confidence all the days of our lives, knowing that we have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.